0: Well, wow. so it's a joy this morning to be able to introduce to you this series that we're jumping into here at Christmas. It is called the Thrill of Hope. It is our Advent series uh, for this December, and our prayer for us all is that we would uh, that we would be filled with hope, that we would uniquely be filled with the hope of the gospel this Christmas season, and that we would continually set our eyes on the grace of of Jesus as we look in into the manger. That, that we would see these experiences of hope and and His grace and, and, and the joy and the peace that comes with following Jesus. This video is, is very remarkable because uh, th- this morning we are going to look at really the, the mission of God. We're going to look at how God has called us to hope, not only to be hope partakers but also to be hope givers. And when we really look at the heart of the Christmas message we, we see going as being really the center of it because our Savior is a sent God. Mission is at the very center of who He is because God essentially, as John 1.14 tells us, that, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that God sent Himself in the form of His Son to come to earth in the very humble picture of, of being a baby in a manger to live a perfect life that we should have lived, and to die the death that we deserve to die in our place. And now we see him in glory at the right hand of the Father. And so mission is at the very heart of of what Christmas is, because it's about his coming, and what we're going to see this morning is it's also about our going. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 76 through 79. But I want to talk a little bit about Zechariah and Elizabeth. I think this is, uh, Luke gives us this beautiful picture of who they are as a family. because He, he uses Zechariah and Elizabeth to introduce John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a remarkable figure, kind of a little bit odd, but his, his, his role is to go before Jesus and introduce the world to Jesus through, through this message of righteousness and this message of repentance. And really at, at the heart of understanding the gospel is for us to understand that we are sinners, that we're far from God, that we are in need of a Savior. And that message of repentance is what goes before Jesus, before the ministry of Christ to prepare a world to, to meet him. This morning, we're going to look at the similarities between John the Baptist's life and, and what our life should be about. We also, like John the Baptist, our identity should be about going before the people in, in our life to be able to point them to Jesus. And we're going to take a look at, at that this morning. You think, you think about, a lot of us probably know a lot about Zachariah and Elizabeth because they're very unique figures. Um, they are people uniquely positioned to be used by God because we're told that they're, they're holy and blameless we're also told that, that they're in, in a little bit of a situation that, that makes a, a miracle very necessary in their life. Um, Zechariah is, is, is serving in the temple when an, when an angel of the Lord appears to him. And he says, Behold, your, your prayers have been answered. You're going to have a boy, and you're going to name him John, and he's going to be great. He's going to be a prophet of, of the Most High God. And what what is what is very unique about this is that that John or I'm sorry, that Zachariah is uniquely used by God in the midst of his serving. And I think that is a truth that we can all grasp this morning, that God typically uses us when we are already in the midst of serving him. And so if you're wrestling with something this morning of of some kind of calling or or where God is leading you, he's most likely going to show you in the midst of your serving. Now, the angel appears to Zechariah, says, your, your prayers have been answered. And Zechariah responds in kind of an odd way. He, he, he questions the angel, and he says, well, I, I'm an old man, and my, my wife is very advanced in age. Now, this is a, a very wise man. He, he cleans up the, the age of his wife a little bit. He doesn't say she's old. He says, I'm an old man. My, my wife is very advanced in age. means the same exact thing, but he's using a, a little political language here to convey this. And essentially, there's a lapse of faith in this moment. Uh, The angel says your prayers have been answered. And and we can kind of assume that maybe it was Zachariah's prayer years ago to have a son. But God's memory does not work the same way that our memory works. And the message that God has given this angel is that your prayers have been answered and you're going to have a son. The, the angel seems very offended that Zechariah questions this. He says, I, I'm an angel who stands in the presence of God, and this is the message I've come to give to you. And so uh, Zechariah's re- really punishment for his lapse of faith was that, that he was going to be mute um, from that moment in, until John the Baptist was born. And we, we see some, some beautiful moments in the life of their family. Um, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and... I think it may be about month six or so, and, and, and John the Baptist leaps in, in, the, be- in the belly of, uh, of Elizabeth. And it's just kind of a beautiful I- imagery, you know, to, to think about. Then one day, John the Baptist is born, and uh, he says, his name's going to be John. And, and everybody gathered around and says, why is he going to be named John? He should be named Zachariah after his dad. And they, they turn to Zechariah and he writes on this tablet, his name is John. And then, at once, Zechariah can speak. You think about the concept, assuming John the Baptist's uh, uh, pregnancy was nine months, Zechariah has had a lot of time to reflect. He's been silent. He spent a lot of time in silence and solitude. And out of this, this long period of time in which Zechariah has, has witnessed a miracle and has seen God's faithfulness really up close and, and he's not able to speak, it's probably given him a lot of time to think. And I think out of the, really out of the beauty of this time spent along with God comes what he gives us in this prophecy, really in, in the form of a song that we're going to see in verse 76. And let's read that together. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. If we were to compare our lives with the lives of John the Baptist, and we, we really take to heart this message, we see that you know, God's instruction for us is for us to go, for us to go and prepare the way of the Lord into the lives of the people. And, and th- this is a beautiful reality, that God has uniquely equipped us and called us to go and, and make disciples. That often people need relationship before they really need revelation. And that is why God has chosen to use discipleship as the means for people coming to know him. And a, a lot of times, what's unique about discipleship is, is it, it takes investment. It, 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 a lot of times it's, it's messy. And if you look out at kind of the landscape of the church in America, we see that we're in a state of decline. Now, there's a lot of great things going on in the church in America. There's a lot of wonderful things. We're seeing little pockets of revival. There's great churches that are growing. But overall, when we look at it, we see that we're plateaued or, or declining. And, and I think, and, and what other people believe, is that we've really embraced this culture of, of wanting converts rather than, than disciples. Um, there, there's an evangelism, or um, there's a discipleship guru named uh, Bill Hull. He, he says that we have tried to evangelize the world without making disciples. And, and what happens in so many instances, we, we desire converts rather than we desire Disciples, because disciple making can be messy. It requires investment. It requires time. It's not very glamorous. A lot of times, the numbers, uh, you know, do, do not do not really look that pretty. Sometimes with discipleship, because discipleship, the mentality is multiplication and replication. Um, uh, there's a missiologist uh, named Neil Cole that says that the church should really judge itself by its disciples that's really the the metric that discipleship is the metric that the church should pay attention to because the the metric of discipleship doesn't lie if we can we can deceive ourselves in having big numbers and and big monumental numbers of giving but discipleship at its root is is a beautiful uh metric for how we're doing you know as, as a church and uh we we have to understand that that is what God has called us to do. He's called us to go. This video is, is beautiful. It, it, this video that we watched a moment ago shows how this all works. That God planted a, a desire in in the heart of this missionary. That that hope essentially welled up in their heart and overflowed out into this calling of this desire to go to the nations. And for for us, uh, God is certainly calling us to be hope partakers but but in, in in his timing he's calling all of us to go in in some way may not be going to the othermost parts of, of the world but a lot of times he calls us simply to go across the street or to go to the cubicle beside us or to go to the student at the desk beside us we look into the life of Zechariah. god showed up in his life while he was serving the lord and that's what we must be about as well. At the very heart of, of Christmas is going. And my prayer for my own life this year is that I would not get caught up in, in, in all the, the beautiful things of Christmas and be distracted by what God has for me and my family this Christmas. I'd love to share with you a story. This is kind of the story that you would typically uh, want a, a, a warm fireplace behind. you. It's kind of a heartwarming story. Uh, it, I, I've seen it on Facebook the last few years, and you know, if it's on Facebook, it's definitely got to be true, right? Uh, I researched a little bit. Uh, it was actually written by a shepherd who wanted to uh, describe to his children in vivid terms uh, what the, the meaning of Christmas really was. I'm going to read this to us. Uh, I'm going to read it a little bit, and then I'll con- conclude with a summary. It was Christmas Eve, 1881. I was 15 years old and feeling like the world had caved in on me because there just had not been enough money to buy me the rifle that I'd wanted for Christmas. We did the chores early that night, and for some reason, uh, I just figured Pa wanted a little extra time so we could read in the Bible. After supper was over, I took off my boots and stretched out in front of the fireplace and waited for Pa to get down that old Bible. I was still feeling sorry for myself, and to be honest, I wasn't in much of a mood to read Scripture's. But Paul didn't get the Bible. Instead, he bundled up again and went outside. Couldn't figure out what was going on because we'd already done all the chores. I didn't worry about it long enough. I was too busy wallowing in self-pity. Soon, Paul came back in. It was a cold, clear night, and there was ice on his beard. He said, come on, Matt. Bundle up good. It's cold out tonight. I was really upset then. Not only was I not getting the rifle that I wanted for Christmas, now Paul was dragging me out into the cold for no earthly reason that I could see. We'd already done all the chores. I couldn't think of anything else that needed doing, especially on a night like this. They went out to the shed and they put the high boards on uh, their wagon that was pulled by horses. And his paw uh, got two huge bundles of wood and filled it up. And he watched him, uh, Matt watched him do this, and he, he became very concerned that he, he realized this was going to be a lot of work, a big job. And then his, his pa went out and, and got a ham out, out of the cellar. And then he went and got some flour. And then he came back with, with a bag that was kind of unidentified. And they, they got in the wagon, and they started to go down the road. And uh, Matt asked his dad what, what was in this bag. And he said, well, have you been by the widow's house down the road lately? And Matt said, uh, well, yeah, I've, I've been by. Why, uh, What's going on? And, and he said, well, I went by the other day. And uh, I saw uh, little Jakey w- was out in the yard, and he was playing. He didn't have any shoes. And I also saw that all the wood had run out. And so we're going to go over to the widow's house, and we're going to give her some wood. So they pulled up. They unloaded all the wood, and they went and knocked on the door, and they went in. They found that the fire was out, that all the children were cold. They didn't have anything to eat. And um, so uh, he sent Matt out to get some wood and to get the, the cabin warm and to get the fire going and uh, he shared with the widow all the things that he had brought the the food and, and the shoes and uh, he had even brought candy and and matt uh, something happened in matt's heart that that transformed him all of a sudden the um the the shallowness of not getting that rifle uh, was not a big deal anymore and in seeing the happiness on on the faces of, of the children just delighted him and, uh, so after a little bit of time, they departed that night, and um, they, they sat on the, uh, the wagon on the way back. And his dad explained to him the whole picture. He said, Matt, uh, we, we had actually set aside a, a little bit of money to buy you that rifle. And I actually got up this morning. I was going into town to the store to buy that rifle when I passed by the widow's house, and I saw them in great need. He said, I, I hope you don't mind, Matt, but we used that money. Uh, to buy these items for them that will mean so much more than that than that rifle would, and uh, Matt reflected upon the change that happened in in his heart riding on that cold wagon that night, understanding that the true meaning of Christmas uh, at at the heart of what Christmas is is all about sacrifice and and going and meeting the needs of other people, and he saw the heart of what God desires for our heart to be about it at, at Christmas. The hope of Christmas is found and serving, and going. And, and we even see that Jesus tells us that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The second thing that we see in this passage, as we uh, see that, um, I'm going to start back in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The second thing that we need to understand that God is calling us to, that we need to daily understand the why in our lives. Understanding why is, is very, very important. We are we're thinking people. We, we are people that, that reason. God has designed us uniquely that way in his image. He's given us a three-pound brain with 86 billion neurons to think and to process. And scientists actually tell us that when we ask why, when we seek discovery, there's something unique that that happens. In in all these neural paths, uh, dopamine is released, and, and we actually get pleasure out of discovery, that God has designed us to find pleasure in knowing why things are. And ultimately, I think it, as, as we walk through this life of sanctification, you know, we're to be like God and we are to submit all of our intellect and our emotions over to Jesus. And I, and I think those, uh, those, uh, that process helps in that. We're very unique. Animals do not do this. Uh, other uh, species do not do this. We are unique as human beings created in the image of God. We reason and we think through things. It's so important for us to understand why. The why is told right here it is because of the tender mercy of our God. Why is it so important for us to understand why? It's because we find purpose in the why. If you have children, there's a stage in every kid's life that begins and keeps continuing on that they want to know why for everything. And, that, and that's, that's a good thing sometimes. It, it can get you know a little bit annoying, but it's a very, very good thing most of the time. But I think what I really want to pinpoint is a lot of times... We, we find the bigger purpose in the wine when, when we can see sacrifice. Uh, if you think back to, you know, Christmases in your childhood, think about some little gift that you may have received that was very, very special to you, but in, in worldly terms was not really that big of a deal. Uh, mine did not come at Christmas. Mine was actually in the middle of a summer. Uh, probably when I was about seven or eight years old, uh, I went to my, my grandfather, and I had, I had seen this watch that was in a store, in my small town that I grew up in in Georgia, there were two stores, really three stores you could buy things from, there was a Rite Aid drug store, there was a Family Dollar, and there was a Piggly Wiggly, and if those three stores didn't have it, you really didn't need it, and uh, I had I'd seen this uh, little Timex watch in a, in a Rite Aid drugstore, and uh, in all the TV shows I'd watch, all the movies I'd watched all the, the real heroes had a really cool watch, and I just thought this watch looked really cool. And so I, I told my grandpa about it. I said, hey, there's this Timex watch in the Rite Aid. I'd love to have this watch. I don't have a watch. I will work all summer cutting grass if you will buy me this watch. Now, I was going to be working all summer cutting grass no matter what. But I, I thought, you know, getting a watch out of the deal would be great. So my, my papa didn't give me that watch just then. I think he, he, he let me cut grass a couple of weeks. But eventually he surprised me with it. He, he gave it to me. And it was a simple watch. I don't think it cost more than $12, but it became very, very special to me and um, wore it all the time, wore it to school. My friends thought it was cool. Uh, We eventually moved to South Carolina. I miss my small town. I miss my grandparents. You know, everything that I ever knew was there. And I could always hold on to that watch and, and remember where I came from. I f- felt a, a certain sense of peace and, and hope as I was wearing it. And then uh, later on, my grandfather passed away, and it was even more meaningful then. It was meaningful because there was sacrifice to it. We didn't have a lot of money. My grand- it was not really something that my grandfather really should have afforded to, but, uh, to buy it, but, but he purchased it for me because he, he loved me. And I think that uh, in our life, when we see sacrifice, the, the why gives us even a lot more purpose. And we have to ask the question, why did God save us? There's two main reasons God saved us, because he loves us. And the second reason, I think, is that he saved us so that we would be sanctified, that we would be sanctified and holy. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God did not save us just for us to be converts. He saved us for us to be disciples. Disciples that would be filled with his spirit. Disciples that would grow in our faith. That would grow in our sanctification. And that would then go out into the world to lead other people to him. J.I. Packer says this. In reality, holiness is the goal of our redemption. As Christ died in order that we might be justified. In order that we may be sanctified and made holy. And what is key here? is that transformation is Christ's goal in our life. That God has saved us for the purpose of transformation. One, one of the most critical doctrines in the New Testament is the doctrine of our union with Christ. Over 220 times New Testament writers use the phrase of in Christ or, or in the Lord or in Him. There's three things that are very important in our union with Christ. First of all, our solidarity with Christ. We uh, Christ is like us in that he was fully human. He was our representative as the second Adam. He, he lived the life that we should have lived. He lived a perfect life as both fully human and fully God. The second thing is, is transformation. Christ and the, the Holy Spirit transforms us from the inside out. And that is what's so critical about discipleship is because there's nothing external that can make us holy. There's nothing external that, that can change us. God takes that that inside of us and and he transforms us and he works on us and he makes us look more and more like him through transformation. And those are the stories that bring him so much glory when we see someone, we see a life that is far from God grow to become very near. The last thing that's important in our union with Christ is our communion with God. Christ remains and abides and and dwells with us. We, we, We go from from being near and being with Christ to being like Christ. And that is how transformation happens, simply being near, being with God, seeking Jesus in the ordinary means of grace, seeking him in his word and Bible intake, seeking him in prayer, seeking him through biblical community and things like scripture memory and, and, and biblical meditation. Being with God transforms our lives and, and our ability to to really experience joy at Christmas is completely contingent upon our intimacy with Christ. Our time spent with Jesus this Christmas is going to determine our joy and peace this Christmas, not our presence, not, not our time with family, not football teams winning or losing, not food, whatever it may be. If we are to find peace and joy this Christmas and understand the hope that God has called us to, it is going to be completely dependent upon our intimacy with him, So the big why that Zechariah gives us here, that God is working to save us because of his tender mercies. Mercy is one of the most beautiful aspects of the character of God. Um, I had this little book since I was in high school. It's called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And and I think why I like it so much is it has these short little chapters. It takes like 30, maybe a minute and a half to read the chapters. But he has a beautiful chapter on the mercy of God. I'm just going to share a little bit of it because I think it's beautiful. When through the blood of the everlasting covenant, we children of the shadows reach at last our home in the light, we shall have a thousand strings to our hearts, but the sweetest may be the one tuned to sound forth most perfectly The mercy of God. Tozer goes on to talk about our wretchedness and our in the darkness that we live in and and how sinful we are. That when we get to heaven and and if we have any ability to look back on the sinfulness of our life, God's mercy will be the most beautiful aspect of his character because of, of his patience with us. He he describes um, the heavenly harp of having all these aspects of God's character, but our most favorite string will be that string that is tuned to the mercy of our God, and that is a beautiful, beautiful picture. The third thing that we need to understand as God is calling us to be sent people and calling us to go in hope is that we are to uh, give light to those who are in darkness. Verse 79 says... That John the Baptist will, will come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and guide our way into the way, guide our feet into the way of peace. God in his tender mercy desires to use our lives as a light out into the darkness. I would say compassion and empathy. Is at the very heart of the prerequisites to being used by God in this manner. For us to be light givers, we have to be compassionate people. We, we, we look to Jesus in Matthew 9 when he looked out on the people and, and he had a heart of, of compassion for them. He saw them as, as sheep with, with, without a shepherd. And uh, ultimately, we think about the tender mercy of God at the root of, of that phrase. Is, is compassion and, and empathy. Back, back, in, um, back in that verse, there, there's a lot of debate uh, because that, that word for tender mercy, um, in, in the original language it was used, uh, they, they debate whether it talks about the, the bowels or the, the upper thoracic region that en- encompasses the heart and, and the lungs. But whatever it is it, it is, it is thought in the first century to mean that, that area of the body where emotion is its most deepest. And this gives us the most vivid, most beautiful picture of compassion and empathy we see in our hope-giving God. That God, in his tender mercy, desires to send us to be hope for the people. Christmas is a beautiful time, and we do not need to be deceived by the beauty of Christmas. Um, whether it's a Hallmark movie, uh, I, I was just in New York City recently, and, and there's nothing more than I love of walking by the shops and seeing the awesome scenes. The the butcher paper was still covering a lot of them, but love going to the the tree in Rockefeller Center. My favorite place is Bryant Park, where there's all these little shops and people are uh, ice skating around, and it's just it's a beautiful time, and, and everything is lit. There's tons and tons of lights. We cannot allow that beauty, uh, the secular aspect of the beauty of Christmas to deceive us uh, into thinking that we are not living in darkness. The world is still a very dark place during Christmas, and we have to fight against that. And the more, the, the more dark the world is, the more opportunity we have to be the lights of Christ out into the world. I want to read you this from uh, Timothy Keller. He wrote this book um, a couple years ago called Hidden Christmas. If you're looking for a great Christmas devotional, um, this one's great. He says this, Christmas, therefore, is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. It does not say cheer up if we all pull together and we can make a world into a better place. The Bible never counsels indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance. But it supports no illusions that we can defeat them ourselves. Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who say we can fix things if we try hard enough. Nor does it agree with the pessimists who only see a dystopian future. The message of Christianity isn't instead things really are this bad. And we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there is hope. The Christmas message is that on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The reality is, the darker things become the more responsibility we have as disciples of Jesus to shine that light into the darkest places and, and be a hope. And that's why we hope as we go and as, as, we, as we look at kind of where we've been this morning, God, through the life of John the Baptist, is calling us to go and, and make our life about preparing the people that are around us, preparing them for Jesus. We have to daily understand the why of our faith that that Jesus has called us into salvation because he loves us and he desires transformation in our lives. And we have to understand the why for us to truly understand our purpose. And and he's also calling us to give light into the darkness. We're going to close this morning watching a a brief clip. And uh, where we are in this clip, it's, it's one of my favorite scenes from a childhood movie, Apollo 13. Uh, Jim Lovell and, and his crew um, have experienced this catastrophic mechanical failure in the world. America has learned about it. And at this scene in the movie, uh, Jim Lovell's family is gathered around their home and they're watching the news at every moment to try to get news of what's going on. And, and there's a pre recorded interview that these newscasters have done uh, with Jim Lovell uh, months before. And he shares a great message of hope that serves to really give a lot of hope in the midst of the movie. And this is actually a, a true story that they put in Apollo 13. So let's play that clip. A lot of the kids' minds are blown right now. They're thinking, Mr. Rogers was also a Navy pilot and an astronaut? No, no kids. Um, Tom Hanks has just been in a lot of movies. But God can use a lot of circumstances to bring people home. And that is the message we see in, the, in this little clip. If, if God can use biofluorescent algae that he created thousands of years ago to lead someone home onto an aircraft carrier, he can, he can use us to simply extend our relationship into the lives of another person. And, and our, our challenge this Christmas is for us to be aware of our surroundings, to look for opportunities that God may be orchestrating in our lives, circumstances in our lives to bring people home. Now, certainly before we can lead anyone else home, we have to be home ourselves. And that's the challenge of the gospel. That's the calling of the gospel, that we would surrender to Jesus in faith and turn away from our sins and live our lives for his glory. For most of us this morning, the calling is for us to open our eyes to the calling of going that God has given us this Christmas. As we look upon the the manger and we think through the, the humility that that, that, that God undertook to send Jesus His one and only son to earth we think about the, the sentness the, the sending that was involved in that when we truly grasp and understand the beauty of the gospel our natural reaction then is to go and to spread hope the hope that we maybe have held to for years to spread that hope to a person across the street or maybe to the uttermost parts the world. Where's God calling you to go? Let's pray. Jesus, we're thankful, Lord, for your word. We're thankful, most of all, Lord, for your tender mercy, Lord, that you have called us into the light and called us into truth. Father, because of your great love for us, your tender love, and Father, the the prayer that we have for each one of us, Father, is that we would daily experience your tender mercy and your tender love as, as we practice your presence. And just simple spiritual disciplines every day that we would come to know you. And not only know you deeper and deeper, but to become like you through being transformed through your gospel. This morning, Lord, if there's anyone that's far from you, I pray, Lord, that that they would come forward. And that they would draw near to your truth through the gospel. For all of us, Lord, show us areas in our lives of where we need to go and be faithful and serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.